Heavenly Father, this morning I'm humbled to be a mouthpiece, just to give a message from you to us. May we hear clearly what you'd have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of different things that I am afraid of, uh, many different things. Um, one of the things that's most afraid, that I'm mostly afraid of, is small spaces. I am claustrophobic like nobody in this room. Are there any other claustrophobes in here? Rebecca, yes. A few more. There's, there's three or four of us. Let's stay together very far apart. <laughs> other people are afraid of other things, like are there any people that are arachnophobic? Uh, arachnophobic? They're scared of spiders. Yes, very quickly, there was a hand that shot up, a couple hands. Uh, this past week, there were some creepy crawlies in our office. One was a tiny little frog. That's not a spider, but there were some terror in the hearts of some of the ladies in our office this week as I saved that poor little frog's life and took him outside. You're, others of you are afraid of other things like um, fire. I know that there are people that are terrified of fire, and they think about it all the time, and they wonder, when is my house going to burn down in the middle of the night? That's what they think about all the time. But I bet this one many people are afraid of. Is there anyone here that is afraid of heights? Uh-huh. We had a guy in the FLA choir. He was in the back row. He's probably six foot four, and I thought to myself, his whole life is terrifying to him because he raised his hand, I'm scared of heights. Poor guy. There was a man last year, 31 years old. His name's Tim Howell, and he's a mountain climber. And he climbed the Matterhorn there in Switzerland and Italy, Italy. And he took us on his journey because he had a 360-degree GoPro camera that he took to the top. Now, I'll warn you, if you are scared of heights, you might want to close your eyes because this is his view from the top. Let's see what it looks like. Go ahead. There he is. <laughs> He's on top of the world. The Matterhorn is a 14er. It's 14,000. Oh, look at this. This is ridiculous. 14,000 feet in the air. The Matterhorn is a dividing line between Italy and Switzerland. Here he goes on his little, little jaunt. I mean, how wide is that? He's moving along. This guy's nuts. He needs counseling, therapy. <laughs> oh, man. 14,000 feet in the air. Um, it's a beautiful place, obviously, but uh, you wouldn't find me up there. Oh, he's, he's coming up to his friends now. He's got to make a pass. What's he going to do? Put a blinker on? Turn to the left lane? <laughs> Keep your eyes closed if you're still scared. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. As I've watched this video many times, there's one point that jumps out to my mind. See, this Matterhorn is a dividing line between two countries. You have Italy on one side, and you have Switzerland on the other. If he falls to the right, trips and stumbles, he falls 14,000 feet to his death in Italy. If he stumbles and falls to the left, he falls 14,000 feet to his death in Switzerland. And there's a principle in this video, and it's simply this. It doesn't matter which way he falls, he still dies. As he walks the divide, if he falls to the right or if he falls to the left, it doesn't matter. He still loses. He ends up on either side of the great divide, and he still dies. See, across the globe right now, any country, any nation in the world, 
There are great divides that split humanity. You can name any topic right now, and we are split on them. And I've watched this division or this divisiveness in the world grow and grow and grow over the last several years. It's like this snowball that's gaining momentum. In fact, you remember back in 2015, that's only six years ago, guys. 2015, there was a picture that broke the internet. Here's the picture right here. Do you remember this picture? You do. See, this was a picture, it's a, just a blurry image that got put out on social media, and it was kind of a, a joke, you know, people would think, oh yeah, this is funny. Uh, well, if you look at this picture, you're either in one of two camps. Either you see gold and white, or you see black and blue. And this morning, I would like to just put a little test out there. How many of you see this dress as gold and white? Ooh, you are the righteous ones. <laughs> How many of you see it as blue and black or blue and gray? Ah, a few more. This morning in first service, as the choir was up here and we, sh we put this picture on the screen, there was a dividing line and it was right here. And it was like all the super young eyes saw it as a, a golden blue, a golden white, and the rest saw it as black and, and blue. And it was, it, they gasped, they said, how could they? And this picture, although it's just a blurry image, it got sent around, and within a week, there were 10 million shares with either hashtag gold and white or hashtag black and blue. And it was funny, and we laughed about it. And we said, oh, that's funny, you see it a little differently than me. But it quickly became something where people said, no, 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 this is the right way, and we took sides on it, right? That's just six years ago, and that snowball has still continued to roll and grow, and the divides have gotten bigger and bigger, and now there's divides everywhere. From racial injustice to reasons why people riot, from Republican to Democrat, from COVID vaccines and mask mandates. Can I get a witness? Ah, oh, so done with COVID. From your news outlet of choice, to your social media of choice. Now here's one that's a little closer to home. From women's ordination to regional and state conferences. Divides are everywhere. Everybody finds themselves with choices and opinions to form, but the problem is that we found ourselves without any common ground, and so it's become you're either for us or you're against us. You're either with us or you're without us. You can't have one foot in one world and one foot in the other. And the divisions in our country and world, they not only split families and friends, but what happens is we entrench ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into our own opinion and our own thought, and we dig deeper because we're afraid that if we see somebody else's perspective, that we might be wrong. In January this year, social media was blowing up, pictures, video. I went home, and I turned on the TV, and I saw this right here. My two boys, Caffrey and Kanan, they were six and eight years old, still are. They sat there on the couch and they watched. And some of you may say, Pastor Matt, you let your kids watch this? And I can understand why you wouldn't want your kids to watch this, but I'm more of a realist and I want my kids to understand what reality is around them. They need to know the sin that's in our world. And the innocence of their questions shocked me to the core as it exposed the division in the world today. And these two boys, they said questions like, Daddy... Why are there so many different colored flags there? Or, Daddy, why would people do this? They don't know what's going on, but they can see it with their own eyes. 
I don't know about you, but your, your, what your friend circle looks like. I oftentimes will ask people, hey, what does your friend, your, your circle on, on Facebook look like? How many, how many friends do you have? And like, what, what does it look like? Because I feel like sometimes that mine is unique. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Do all your friends agree with you? See, on my Facebook, I have so many different churches represented and conferences and, and different religions and people from different states and all over the place. And it's such a wide variety of people. And I get the horrific honor of filtering through the extremes on both sides. And somewhere in the middle, I find something that might be truth. And this morning, I'm looking for answers. I'm looking for answers on how to live and lead as a disciple of Jesus in a world that's split apart. How do we represent him in the midst of all this division? And you know that's what Satan wants, right? Division. That's what he wants. That's his heart's desire. He's angry this morning because we're exposing who he really is. Satan's the father of lies. He's the sneaky undercurrent of division that pulls people apart, pulls marriages apart, pulls families apart, pulls churches apart. It's his M.O. Ever since the very beginning, he walked those glimmering, gleaming hallways of the Almighty's throne room, and he said, fake news. And the angels, they listened to him, and he began to create this division with the innocent cherubs that used to be God-glorifiers, and now they're irreverent rebels. And it wasn't long before a third of the angels in heaven made their choice, and they dug their heels in because there was never going back, and they went far enough that the grace from the originator of grace, the great grace giver, couldn't get past the barricade that Satan had set up. But he didn't stop there, because he took his, his division to the Garden of Eden. And as Adam and Eve, they're perfect beings, they never sinned in their life, they're there, and the fruit's there, and he whispers to Eve, and he tells her to be pulled away from Adam, and she does, and then he whispers into to Adam, he says, hey, Adam, you've got to be with your wife, you should rather leave God and be with her. And so they, they, they split from God, and they go from two human beings that are constantly looking in the garden, where is God? Where is he? I want to be with him. They turned into angry humans that said, it's your fault, God, you're the one that made us like this. And Satan who knows that he loses in the end. He'll do whatever it takes to split people apart. Jesus, as he's in the midst of his ministry, he's healing, he's teaching, he's preaching to people, he's casting out demons. He gets um, blindsided, well, maybe or maybe not, from some religious leaders in Mark chapter 3. Here's what they say. They say, Jesus, he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving them out. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? He says, I'm just doing the work of my Father. And then he responds by this. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. I mean, those are powerful words from Jesus. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And while we call ourselves the United States of America, the greatest kingdom to ever be on the planet Earth, division cuts us off at the knees. In fact, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, this movement that continually peers down the road as we look for when Jesus comes, we've, we've seen it coming, we've seen it in prophecy, we've, we've scoured the scriptures to see that there will be end times and we're in them. We've seen it coming, we've read it, and this morning I believe Jesus has an answer for us to how do we live and lead as disciples of Jesus and Christians in a divisive world that we live in. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. 
We're just going to read a few verses today, but I think Jesus' words are powerful today. If you brought your Bible, it's great. If you didn't, there's a Blue Pew Bible in front of you, and you can follow along on page 767. If you've never had a Bible before, now you can follow along, page 767. And while you're turning there, I'll give you a little context. John, he's known as John the Beloved. He and Jesus had a really close relationship. They, they had a special friendship, and I love how John describes Jesus because that's how I see him too. John describes the last moments of Jesus' life here before his death. Just to give you some context, Judas has already betrayed Jesus. Peter's already denied Jesus, and Jesus is in custody, and he stands trial before the whole world here in John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Here's what it says. Then Jesus, sorry, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. And we pause there for a minute. Here you've got the church probably doing what they think is right, protecting doctrine, protecting from outsiders. They don't want this guy Jesus coming in because he's got these wild ideas and he, he does things differently than they've always done. And they've come to the governor because they've run out of power. Now I find it interesting that you've got the church going to the state for help. You've got the church that's got its own rules, its own regulation, its own laws. This is how we do things but they've run out of power. And so the church goes to the state for power. And to be honest, anytime the church goes to the state, it is in a, in a weak and corrupt state already. Jesus has already been interrogated by Caiaphas. He's the high priest. He's the head of the church. And the church has found him guilty, but they don't have enough power to kill him. And so they take him to the Roman governor to get his power to kill this man. I think it's ironic that these Jewish leaders... They're getting ready for the Passover. They don't want to defile themselves so they can be a part of the Passover, yet they're about to kill the Passover lamb. The text continues in verse 33, and I believe it's some poignant words for this moment right now in history. Here's what it says. Pilate then went back inside the palace, and he summoned Jesus and asked him, and you have to listen to the way that Pilate says this, and I don't know how he says it. I think most of us would say that he said, are you the king of the Jews? But I think he says it like this. Are you the king of the Jews? Almost as if the Holy Spirit is already speaking to his heart, and that he's almost on the verge of accepting Jesus as his Messiah and his Savior, because Jesus reads it that way. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate instantly gets hard. He says, am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? See, it's in this conversation between Jesus and the governor. Jesus and Pilate, 
that you see Jesus going deeper than just the surface. See, see Pilate, he just wants to know the surface answers. He just wants to know uh, just the barely questions. He wants to know where Jesus lies on stuff. Where is he affiliated with? Where is his kingdom? He says, all right, Jesus, people have been talking about you. Some people say you're the Messiah. Some people say you're not. So where are you? Where do you lie on this idea? Where do you stand on this? He asks surface-level questions, and Jesus responds with heavenly questions, with deeper questions, because that's the Jesus that I know. He doesn't care about the surface. He wants to go to your heart. And Pilate, he asks these questions, basically the same questions as some of these. Pilate says, hey, Jesus, who'd you vote for? Where do you stand on this? Are you Republican or are you Democrat? Pilate says to, to Jesus, hey, surface levels here. What are your thoughts on COVID? How do you think about masks and, and, and uh, vaccines? Do you think you're pro, pro them or against them? Where's your stance? Where's your allegiance? Where's your kingdom? He says this, hey, hey Jesus, where do you stand on women's ordination? Should we uh, uh, ordain women to the gospel ministry? He says, hey, Jesus, where do you stand on systematic racism? Is it real or is it not? Surface level questions. And Jesus responds with kingdom questions. Because Jesus could care less about politics. He, could, he doesn't care about that. He cares about human beings. He cares about the lost. He cares about hearts. He cares about eternal salvation. And so he goes way deeper than just the surface level. And Jesus, he replies with a statement that I think summarizes the call for every Christian and disciple that's in this room right now. He says this in verse six, 36. Here's what he says. Jesus responds to him. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. He says, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. He says, but now my kingdom is from another place. It's like Jesus responds um, to Pilate with something that's much bigger than politics, something that's much bigger than divisions and differences. Jesus takes Pilate's convicted heart and he takes him above the fray and above the anger, and above the hurt, and above all the drama, and he takes him and points him towards the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that when it comes to some of the division that we experience in life in America right now, that our calling as Christians and disciples of Jesus is to point people above it all and point them to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, since the beginning of Adventism, we've been pointing people to the kingdom as we've viewed the gospel through the lens of the three angels' messages in Revelation chapter 14, as they call to all humanity, as the first angel says, the kingdom of heaven can be yours because, Jesus, uh, because of God's grace for you. And the second angel follows up. He says, you can't be a part of the kingdom of heaven by doing something or earning it. And the third angel, as Ty Gibson puts it, he says, the human race is divided into haters and lovers, into forcers and liberators into persecutors and those that are persecuted, but love wins in the end. And I believe our calling as Seventh-day Adventist Christians is not to raise the banner of whatever side of whatever opinion it is. It's not to see how many people you can get to put the bumper sticker of who you voted for on their car. It's not to see how many people you can get to defect from their opinion to your opinion. Our calling is to rise above the division and to point people to the kingdom of God. Our calling is to point people to Jesus and his grace and his mercy and the beauty of living a life that's fully devoted to him. Our calling is to point people to the gospel. See, sometimes I, it feels like the church is weak. 
like it's irrelevant, like the rest of the world moves on and the church stands still and we get stuck with little drama bits over should we sing hymns or should we, should we play guitars up front or should we, whatever, you name it, it's here. But I believe that the church is a powerful force. Jesus even said the church cannot be stopped, not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. The church has power, but the power doesn't come from politics or opinions or pastors or, or Sabbath school teachers. It comes because the gospel message is the message that the church conveys to the entire world. Just think about what happens when the gospel message is preached to people. You've got a story in the Bible where this, it's a prostitute. She's a sinner. She's a failure. She's far from God as far as you can get. And Jesus comes to her and he gives the gospel message to her and her life is changed. And Mary Magdalene goes from a sinner to one that's been saved. You got a story of Jesus. He sits down at a well, and there's a woman there, and she's had so many different marriages, and we don't know why. We don't know if they all died or if there was affairs or whatever it was, but she sits on the edge of the well, and she speaks to Jesus, and he shares the gospel message with her, and her life is changed. You got a story of Saul. You've heard of Saul before. He's on a, on a horse, and he's riding to Damascus, and he experiences Jesus, and Jesus gives the gospel message to him, and he becomes the greatest church planner that's ever been on the face of the earth. You got the story of Jonah. He's just a prophet, a runaway. He goes to a city and gives the gospel message, and an entire city is changed because of the gospel. Right now, further than any space telescope can look into deep space, there are beings and angels that look down on planet Earth to see the great controversy portrayed in humanity, and they watch and they wonder, is God's grace good enough? And they see the gospel working, and they are changed because of the gospel message here on planet Earth. The kingdom of heaven is built by the power that's found in the gospel. And until the church sees it as an invitation of us inside the church to them outside the church, our message will only ever be us versus If your agenda or your political party or your gender or your race or your thoughts on COVID or your religion or whatever motivation it is, if it supersedes the power of the gospel in your life, then maybe you haven't experienced the gospel yet. The gospel is the power of grace personified in the person of Jesus. And it's given to unite the kingdom of God. In the great city of Kennesaw, Georgia, where I just spent five years of my life there, there are still the remains of a war. Susie, you know you've been there before too. There are still trenches that are dug in the hillside. You can see where cannons were placed. There are still bullets that are lodged in trees from a hundred years ago or more. Uh, it's the Kennesaw National Battlefield where some of the bloodiest Civil War battles were fought. It's crazy. You can walk right through it. You can walk in the trenches where the Civil War happened. You're walking in the midst of history. My family, we would always love on Sabbath afternoons to go to Kennesaw Battlefield and just hike some of the trails. They go all over the place. One of our favorite places was Camp Brumby. It's a 1930s uh, CCC camp that was developed and built there. It, it's just still the remains are there a little bit. Uh, one Sabbath afternoon, my boys, when they were really young, they said, Daddy, we want to go to the playground. 
man, I don't want to go to the playground on a Sabbath afternoon. Slides and swings and kids yelling and people barbecuing and you got music blaring. Like, that's not Sabbath to me. And so Jennifer and I, we said, hey, what if we go to the natural playground? And our boys said, ooh, what's that? And we said, oh, well, it's this beautiful place. You can climb on trees and logs and stuff. And they said, let's do it. And so that's where we would go, the natural playground. Another of those favorite places was Pigeon Hill. And it's a, a wonderful place where you can park and hike trails all over the place. And you end up at this rocky outcropping on top of Pigeon Hill where, where my boys would love to like throw rocks and build forts and all sorts of stuff. But there was one place where we would often go. It was called Cheatham Hill. Beautiful spot. And as we would hike around Cheatham Hill, we often would think of the story that happened there. In fact, I've got a picture of, of Cheatham Hill. Here it is on the screen. And another picture of a guy. That's Cheatham Hill. Now, I don't know if you can see. It's probably really small for you guys to see. But that, the, the, the hill, the grassy field, it's a very steep hill that goes all the way, just way up to the top. When you stand at the bottom, you're looking up a, a pretty steep hill. This is Colonel Daniel McCooks, 29 years old. He's the colonel. The Union Army's at the bottom. The Confederate Army's at the top. The orders come down from the top that say, um, hey, Daniel McCook, you lead the charge and you take the people up the hill. And so he gathers the troop and he knows it's going to be a massacre, yet the orders are the orders. And so they charge towards the Confederates up towards the top of the hill. And the few that get to the top of the hill, they look back down the hill and they see the field strewn with the bodies of their comrades. And they think to themselves, what do we do? Do we stay here? Do we retreat and run back down the hill? Because if we do that, then we're going to be annihilated with these bullets whizzing past and the cannonballs exploding around them. And so they decide to dig in. And so they take the bayonet off the end of their rifle and they start to dig and they get the, their metal cup and they dig and they use their spoon and the fingernails and they're digging in the earth and they dig this deep trench that's along the top. On the other side of the top of this mountain, you have the Confederate army. They have a trench. Oh, it's deep. They've been there for a while waiting for this to happen. It's all dug in. And for a week, you have two armies, all Americans, a uh, hundred yards apart that are fighting each other. They were so close that the, the soldiers could take rocks and throw them at the enemy. They'd stick their rifles up over the top of their deep trench and they would just fire. They don't even know who they're trying to shoot at. They don't know what they're like. They have no idea, but it doesn't matter because they're the enemy. And so they just shoot in that direction. The Union Army is trying to figure out what to do. They're stuck there. And so they decide to dig a tunnel. In fact, here's a picture of the top of, of Cheatham Hill. This is what it looks like today. You've got the Illinois Monument. My boys love to play hide and seek around that monument. And then down in this middle of the picture, the very bottom, you've got this granite semicircle where the tunnel was started, where the Union Army was going to dig through the top of the hill and blow up the Confederates on the other side. And as they're digging through the Confederates from Tennessee, they leave the trench and they go away. And as I think about this story, a civil war between people from the same country and nation, it reminds me about our nation. And it makes me wonder, what role do I have and you have in politics and who and how our nation is led? I believe we have a special job. It's part of our sacred duty as citizens to care about who leads our country. But if our citizenship in this country and this kingdom becomes more important than our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, then we miss the boat. If we become more concerned with digging a deeper trench about anything that we believe, 
if we spend our days loading up on ammo to shoot at the enemy, whoever that is, if we're more concerned with winning the battle that's right in front of us, if we're more concerned with building our own kingdom based on our opinions and our ideas, if we're more focused on building this kingdom than the kingdom of heaven and spreading the gospel, then we're just wasting our time. Jesus charges us with one thing and one thing only. It's the core of discipleship. It's the core of the Great Commission. It's the core of the gospel message. And it's the invitation to join the kingdom of heaven through love. Here's how, John, how Jesus puts it in the book of John. He says this, a new command I give you. It's a new one. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you just love one another. One of my heroes that I have tremendous respect for, we celebrate his life every January. His name's Martin Luther King Jr. His whole life speaks of discipleship and building up the kingdom of God. And one of his most famous quotes is this one right here. He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This morning, I don't know what application fits you because I don't know exactly where each and every one of you are. But somebody may be this. For some of you this morning, you might be feeling conviction on how you handle social media. I see it all the time. Is the majority of what you post something that brings awareness to what you believe? And does it tear up somebody else down? Politics, COVID, leadership decisions at church, at school, at hospitals, you name it. Maybe you need to retreat from the battle lines until you can have a clear picture of your calling, which is only to build the kingdom of God by loving one another. For somebody else, maybe this morning, you're so far down in the trench that you've built that you can't even see out of it anymore. Maybe you need to come to God with repentance and say, God, help me focus more on your kingdom than the kingdom that I'm digging for. Others of you this morning, maybe you just need some gospel in your life. Maybe you've heard of the gospel, but you've never really accepted it in your life. And man, if you want to take those next steps, I will help you. I would love to help you. So come find me. Here's the bottom line. This morning, no matter who you voted for, no matter how you feel about COVID, no matter if you are Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, no matter if you're a man or a woman, we are all called to be soldiers in a battle. It's called the Great Controversy. We are the militia of love and grace for a world that has to see the beauty of Jesus. I want to pray for you this morning as we close. Heavenly Father, today we are challenged by the life of Jesus and by the calling that he gives us to, to love one another, to live a life that shows the grace and the beauty of who he is. God, I want to pray for each and every person here, the families, the marriages, those that have been so impacted by Satan's divisive nature. May you bolster them. May you grow them together. May we have extended and passionate love for those that we meet. May we share your love with others. God, help us live the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.